You have access to the entire world of NPR with your smart speaker. Ask it to play NPR to check the news while you get ready for work or fix dinner. There's a new radio in your house, and it's easier than ever to listen to Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. U.S. Senator Heidi Heidkamp grew up in a big family in the small North Dakota town of Mantador. Population, 90. When you grow up, uh, one of, um, you know, uh, 10% of the population, but in a big family uh, whose mother was a school cook and dad was a seasonal construction worker, we had a lot of hot dish. Did you catch that? She said hot dish. We had a lot of hot dish. What does that even mean? It is a regional expression for what other people would call casseroles. Right. So right away, you know you're from the Midwest if you say, that's my hot dish. Growing up as one of seven children, Senator Heidkamp had to get real familiar with hot dish. Or hot dishes. I'm not sure what the correct plural term is here. Anyway, one of her favorite hot dishes is... Tater tot hot dish. Tell me what a tater tot hot dish is. You don't is. know what a tater tot hot dish is. I mean, is. I'm You know, we I'm have from graduated from cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> so you brown up hamburger. Soy sauce is the secret ingredient. Okay. Soy sauce. And um, you, you, I use cream of celery soup. Because, uh-huh. you know, my family is a picky eaters. And they would take those little chunks of... Um, mushrooms and pick them out if you can imagine that and then you put tater tacho over the top and you put it in the oven and you bake it and it's delicious and that's it yeah it seems really easy well yeah hello Heidkamp doesn't play when it comes to hot dish they featured prominently in her 2012 campaign for senate well, during the campaign, um, I had a series of fundraisers that were called the hot dish, you know, hot mm-hmm. dish fundraisers. No one got any kind of food poisoning, so that's the good <laughs> news, um, because we would just have potlucks. No one got sick, and Heidkamp won the race. Now she is the junior senator representing the great state of North Dakota. She also is the host of a podcast called, wait for it, The Hot Dish, which is basically an extension of those potluck fundraisers. It's a way of getting people together to talk about the issues. I like talking to really smart people. Mm -hmm. And I think people hear uh, about the senator, they think about the Senate, and they think it's all, you know, sitting around yelling at each other. And there is a lot of um, opportunity to really dig into very complicated issues. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we dig into the wide world of podcasts to find the most engaging conversations, and maybe, just maybe, may help you find some new things to listen to. Now, our pal, Senator Heidkamp, doesn't just use her podcast as an excuse to talk to some really smart folks. She also uses the show to explain some of her votes and flesh out some policy priorities like finding the scores of indigenous women who have gone missing in Indian country. Here's a clip from The Hot Dish. There is an epidemic of missing and murdered Native American women in our country. It's an issue that doesn't get nearly enough attention or resources. Today we're going to hear from two women who have dedicated their lives to helping indigenous women overcome obstacles and hardships. With this episode of The Hot Dish, I hope we can help more people become more aware about this hidden crisis in our country and help encourage action to stop it. Heidkamp says she's been working with the FBI to train their attention on this issue in North Dakota and beyond. I am appalled at the lack of urgency in this country to this problem. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand it. Heidkamp's not the only legislator to host a podcast. 
Congressman Keith Ellison has a show called We the Podcast, and Senators Sherrod Brown, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Cory Booker have all dipped their toes in the podcast world. Even Uncle Joe, Vice President Joe Biden, has a show. But Highcamp is the only one of them to have actually hosted a real live call-in radio show. We'll hear more from Senator Heidkamp in a bit about how she ended up on the radio. But first, we're going to talk to some other women with a call-in show. Anne Jacquinette and Claire Roth are two pals who realized something fundamental recently. Women are angry. They're angry about sexual harassment. They're angry about income inequality. And they're angry about being angry. But oftentimes, women don't have an outlet for their rage. So Jacquinette and Roth made a hotline. You've reached the voice mailbox of For a Bad Time Call. Please leave your rants, screams, and exasperated sighs after the tone. Feel free to shout, yell, and use direct address. And remember, hydrate afterwards. So basically, women call the hotline and vent. And then Jackanette and Roth package up that indignation into a three- or four-minute podcast nugget called For a Bad Time Call. Naturally, I had to ring them up. So here's the deal. I went to a friend's housewarming party the other day and they had a fire pit in their backyard. And I decided that I would um, put some more logs on the fire. Um, so this guy who I did not know said, uh, oh, you're, you're going to want to you're going to want to put them uh, like that. And I was like, what? Like, who are you? You're just some schlubby dude wearing Tevas. And, and it's like it's winter, you know? Put real shoes on, man. I can't take advice on how to make a fire from a man not wearing shoes. <laughs> I figured I had to call in. I was like, I, ha- I have to call in. If I'm going to talk to you guys, I have to, like, see what the thing is about. So I was like, okay, I, I have a thing. <laughs> I think that's one of the beauties of the hotline. It's not so much that we're saying, oh, yes, call us, get angry, and then stay angry and get bigger and bigger and bigger. You do what you need to with your anger, but sometimes what that needs to be is to release it. And that's how it operates for me. It's a pressure valve. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just kind of quick spikes up. I call the number. I let it go. I I say it, and then often I let it go. You know, I was upset over Christmas because being five days with your family, we all know it can be stressful. (laughs) Three days max. Three days max. Come on. Well, you are smarter than me, Lauren. (laughs) And so... I called, let it, I said it, I let it go, I went back upstairs, I had a great time with my family, but having that pressure valve was so productive for me. I love that you're calling your own hotline. <laughs> oh, 100%. We, we call each about, we call the hotline at least once a week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then the, each of us listens to the other one. We're like, oh, yeah. okay, are you okay? <laughs> it, well, actually, you did that once, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, because it's supposed to be anonymous. Uh. <laughs> I know your number by now, though. I know. We're the, yeah. I'll say I accidentally included one of Ann's voicemails in one of the podcast episodes because I did not recognize her voice uh. and because I did not know her number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so why are women so angry? <laughs> women have been angry for a while, it turns out, and there hasn't been a big space to really express it, it seems like. Women are angry about sexual harassment at work. They're angry about feeling like they don't have enough money to get by. They're angry about societal expectations of them and how they put them on themselves. Um, Yeah, and they're angry about balancing 
everything. Yeah, they're angry about their workplaces. They're angry that they don't feel heard. They're angry about silly stuff. I just went grocery shopping and I spent $40 and I was going to cook some chicken nuggets. And then I realized the bag was defective and it was like opened and all these crumbs were falling out. And because I'm crazy, I won't cook it because it's open, just bad, it's contaminated. It exhausts me to no end because I make my own choices and I can do my own thing and I'm paying my rent and not asking you for money. So why does it concern you? So this goes out to uh, everyone in the world. Oh, my God. So then I was like, fine, I'll cook sausage patties. And then I opened it. And then I noticed there's a giant slit down the back of that one, too. But now I have to go back to the store and probably buy healthy stuff that's good for my body. <laughs> so it's the gamut. It's the silliest small stuff. And it's the biggest stuff you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And women are also angry that they're angry. Yeah, a reoccurring theme that we get in voicemails is women who feel guilty about being angry in in their everyday life, and they're afraid that they'll be seen as being overly hormonal. You look at studies of this, that women in the workplace who are angry are seen as less credible. Men in the workplace that are more angry are seen as more authoritative. Mm -hmm. Women are better heard if they're sad rather than angry. There's all of this pressure for us to wrap up our feelings in a neat bow and present them pretty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what was the impetus for you guys to make both the the, uh, the hotline and then package it into a podcast? Um, I would say the hotline initially was built for ourselves. It was mm-hmm. built because I was so angry on a day-to-day basis, and I was having the same conversations with my friends over and over, and I didn't, in some ways, I didn't want to burden them with the anger anymore. And then... Um, The podcast, I think, became an even more important piece than we knew. Yeah. Listening to the voicemails is really cathartic because there is types of anger that you feel and then you just let go because you know that it's not that important or you know that you're not really wanting to act on it. And so to hear other people express those and be like, okay, I'm not alone in this, but I'm moving forward. That's a great feeling. And then with the bigger stuff, it's cathartic, but it's also heartbreaking. There have been so many things that have happened recently that I feel like I could talk about. But what I'm going to go back to is that everything that's been in the news and that I've talked to my female friends about has been about sexual assault. And recently, I was on the phone with my mother, and I told her that I felt like I needed to take a break from the news because it was giving me anxiety attacks, and I felt unsafe. And I said that I felt like every woman that I had talked to had been the victim of some kind of non-consensual sexual encounter. And there was a silence, and she just said yes. And I knew that in this silence, we both had stories that we could tell each other about our own experiences, but that we didn't because we knew that they would hurt each other, that we would hurt each other so much by knowing that we had experienced this kind of torment. These people call in and some of the stuff they share 
it's just really hard to listen to. And that's why they're sharing it. And then you think, wow, they called us because they don't have anywhere else to go with this. And that breaks your heart on the second level. And so I feel so connected to these women all across the country. The voicemails go straight to my phone, and I listen to them often right as they come in. And sometimes people will leave multi-part voicemails because there's a three-minute limit on it. (laughs) And so I'll listen to the first one. And by the time I've listened to the first one, the second one will have come in. And I'll think, this woman is lying in her bed because she told me that at 4 a.m. And I'm lying in my bed at 4 a.m. And we're connected, and she doesn't even know it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a really particular experience. Mm-hmm. I, I have said it before, and I'll say it again, that I cry every single time I listen to a final cut of the episode, which is, you know, corny, but it's, well, it's a thing my friend made, and I, like, it It feels... You made it too. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Um, and it feels, um, but it, it just feels really powerful to hear um, all those voices in one place. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm wondering if if you guys had an appreciation um, before you started the project for just how sort of deep anger ran with with so many women. Hmm. No, I did not understand, at least not the way that I do now. We don't even want to burden each other with it. We don't Hmm. even want to lay our anger at the feet of our friends. We're siloed. Mm-hmm. We don't talk to each other about all of this frustration. And, of course, hearing the intimacy of someone talking into their phone as if I'm their friend and telling me everything that's bothering them about their lives gave me a whole new appreciation for the burden that women are carrying. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel, either of you, that this, you know, the, the creation of this project has helped you... Um, like it's um, an outlet for like a creative outlet for um, your own feelings like, oh, I can do something about it because I feel like a lot of times we feel helpless with our yes, anger. 100%. 100%. I feel like this is a way to have an outlet. Yeah. And every time I listen to the podcast, it does feel very motivating because I would I would so much rather be angry than be tired. And so hearing other people be angry is like it's sort of like saying there's work to be done and we're not alone in wanting to do it and jackanette and claire roth are the duo behind the show for a bad time call if you feel like raging out on their voicemail you can find a link on our website biglisten.org now i'm gonna guess that our pal senator heidi heidkamp might appreciate that show As a U.S. senator, she's no stranger to rants. And as a former fill-in radio host, Heidkamp is also pretty well-versed in how to deal with angry callers. Before she had an office on Capitol Hill, where we met with her, Heidkamp was an oil and gas executive. She also filled in for her brother Joel, host of the radio show News and Views. On the mighty 790 KFGO. I did the show, um, hosted the show for... Mm, three to four months. Do you remember how you opened the show when it started? What I said is, sorry, I'm Heidi and not Joel. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> actually, actually, it's interesting because... Really, it, really it, grabbing it's a those show, listeners. Yeah, it's, a, it's a show that is heavily dependent on call-ins. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to make sure that you're very topical and understand the issues of the day and what's going to motivate people. 
This was around the time of the second President Bush's re-election. I remember the issues because he went right into privatizing Social Security, mm. which if ever the phone calls were slow, right. I'd just say, what do you think about privatizing <laughs> Social Security? And the lines would blow up. Heidkamp's experience on her brother's radio show helped her once she hit the stump. She's a moderate Democrat in a very red North Dakota. And since she's up for re-election this year, she's going to need to pull out all the tools in her toolkit in order to win. Being a, a talk show host, you end up being a hockey goalie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't know what's, <laughs> what's going to come at you and when it's going to come at you. But it hones your skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to learn how to how to roll with um, any issue that comes in. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to talk with legendary television producer Norman Lear about his very frank interview show, All of the Above with Norman Lear. We're, We're trying to scrape the barrel of our own experience to reveal some truth. But first, we're going to check in with Army veteran and podcast host Tom Tran about his life after service. I didn't have uh, an army or a sergeant or a captain telling me what to do. I was just trying to find something. That's coming up next. Stick around. This is NPR. Hi, my name is Mike Chaplinski. I live in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and I'm calling about a podcast that my brother and my niece have started doing. It's called Superman's Other Pals. They take old issues of a comic book from the 1950s, specifically Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, um, and they read through it and they comment on it. Yeah, I guess Jimmy also, you know, he's he's a, he doesn't like confrontation, which is weird because he is constantly con- confronting things left and right. I mean, it's often accidental. So he isn't like I'm going to go <laughs> and I am going to fight this camera smashing robot. He's like, ah, there's a camera smashing robot. Help! They're wonderful and bonkers and completely silly. Granted, I'm biased and, you know, he's my brother and she's my niece and I love them. But I really think more people should listen to it uh, because aside from being funny, it's also, you know, a father and daughter bonding. Talk to you soon. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you have a favorite father-daughter podcast or mother-son podcast or anything with wacky grandmas, please let us know about it. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. You know, the family that podcasts together stays together. Four days into Tom Tran's first tour in Iraq, he was shot by a sniper in the back of the head. The Army Staff Sergeant finished his combat tour, but eventually the injury ended his military career. When he returned to civilian life, Tran struggled to find his bearings. No one was telling him what to do anymore, so he could do whatever he wanted, which was mostly just drinking and eating trash food. Then he found comedy. Here he is at the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles talking about the knock-on effects of getting shot. Um, And people are like, that's terrible that you don't have a good memory. And it's not, because I live uh, with a woman, and it could be the best thing that's ever happened in my life. Because I have a built-in excuse to forget everything. She can't get mad at me, because that would be unpatriotic. Since his discharge in 2005, Tran has been touring the comedy circuit and doing some TV work. And recently, he also started a podcast. It's called Battle Scars, and it's all about the experience of being in war from the perspective of fellow veterans. So tell me, like, after that incident happened, it was, I, I seen the video, it was pretty, um, pretty amazing. 
You came pretty close is what I'm saying. So how did that change your life? Well, from that moment on, I mean, I, I talk about that, that day on stage, I just show the video as part of my stand-up act. It's, it's part of my healing process that I'm able to take that moment where I came millimeters from having my head blown off and, and, and turning it into comedy for me, because that's what heals me. But from that day on, I mean, you won't find a photo of me in Iraq with a helmet on, um, because I lived and fought like I was already dead. Tom Tran, host of Battle Scars, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you for having me on. For me, I think uh, an interesting place to start is is something I learned from your show, which is that only 0.5% of the American population is currently serving in the military. Why do you think it's, it's such a small number? After the Vietnam conflict, um, and as a Vietnamese American, you know, I I, that, that particular war has a direct effect on my life and why I'm in the United States. Right. But after that, uh, that draft period, I remember the military not being a thing that people wanted to do. I know like when I joined the army, my mom was like, nope, you're not doing it. Right. Because my father was a prisoner of war for three years in Vietnam. It's crazy. So your family didn't want you to enlist, but you did. What, what was the driver for you? Well, my my mom didn't. Uh, my father, who was a veteran, he's a he's a prisoner of war. He was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He was. <laughs> I've always said my dad never encouraged me to do anything, but he never stopped me. Something happened in in my head. I was like, you know what? The sacrifices that people have had to make for me to be here, I I felt like it was a no brainer to to give back eight years of my life to this country. Yeah. So so you were a, a staff sergeant in the U.S. Army. You did a combat tour in Iraq. And 2003, uh, you, were, you were shot in the head, and then you medically retired from the Army in 2005. After all of that, what, what, what was life like post-military for you? I did nothing but drink and eat and got fat and boozed up and just kind of numbed myself. Uh, until I could figure out what I wanted to do. And I think the problem was I didn't know what to do. I didn't have uh, an army or a sergeant or a captain telling me what to do. I was just trying to find something. And the, and the thing that I loved, music, wasn't working out for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm wondering how did you then find a way to, to sort of redirect your energy, that sort of the uh, adrenaline or rush? How did you find that again or... Or, or find something to replace it with. Stand-up comedy has, for me, been the only thing I've been able to compare to, say, jumping out of an airplane. And as a paratrooper who is afraid of heights, or at least really just doesn't like them, that's a perfect comparison for any time I stood in a doorway ready to hop out of a airplane moving at twenty, at you know, 1,280 feet, 200 knots, if I went on stage with new jokes, that was the most frightening thing I could do because that joke was either going to work or it was going to fail miserably. Right. You know, I, I try to go on stage with new material um, at least once a week. I don't like do a whole set of new material there. <laughs> that's that's how you don't get booked anymore. Uh, but I'll go on and, you know, I'll, I'll do a couple of my tried and true jokes, jokes that I know that'll work. And then I'll slip in something new 
and I'll see if it gets a reaction. Sometimes it hits hard, and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a great bit. And sometimes it'll get a chuckle. I'm like, okay, I got to work on that. But you never know. Yeah. Um, Speaking of material, you got a lot of mileage out of the injuries you sustained in Iraq. And I wonder, you know, like, let's be honest, that gets you someplace, right? The reason I I tell that joke, um, and it's, you know, based on the fact that I got shot in the head my fourth day in Iraq on April 3rd, 2003, um, is A, to put that out there. Because I want people to know and understand what our experiences were like. Um, I want people to understand, yeah, yeah, you can get shot your fourth day in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the Living and working in Hollywood, I hear the stories that get told. Uh, I see the movies that get made, and they're all the door kickery, <laughs> like saving, saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, Zero Dark Thirty. Like, they're all of those stories. But you don't hear about the time that uh, I had dysentery and crapped my pants during a gunfight in Iraq. That's a real thing that happened. I'm real sad I haven't heard <laughs> about that yet. <laughs> oh, it's uh, it, it'll be out on the internet, I'm, so, I'm sure, soon. Um, but that's also why we do battle scars, because people don't hear these stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the people you talked to on the show is uh, is J.R. Martinez, who, in addition to winning Dancing with the Stars, um, was severely burned in Iraq. And we were just clowning. We were literally just clowning in a Humvee, just kind of going through the motions, making the most. We just thought it's another mission, not a big deal. And then suddenly, boom. And what happened was the front left tire ran over a landmine. <laughs> and so essentially right under my feet. And from the explosion, it threw all the other soldiers, threw them all out of the Humvee. But yet I was trapped inside. And so within a matter of seconds, this Humvee was now engulfed in flames. For five minutes, I was trapped inside of a burning Humvee. Like you, I was conscious. I felt this extreme heat and pain coming over my body. And I started to scream or attempt to scream. There was nothing that was coming out. And then finally, finally able to squeak out a help help and in my mind oh my gosh I was like the loudest person in the world at that time and I was help help and in between every single help it was a gasp for air (gasps) help (gasps) I was inhaling all of the smoke from the fire and ultimately affected my lungs I didn't know. I was just trying to survive. But he said something I, I, I thought was so interesting, which was that his scars, and, and he has a, a lot of facial scarring, were a benefit to him and, and helped him sort of connect with other people. And I, I wonder if you feel that way about your own physical and emotional trauma from combat. Um, I don't I don't get that very much. I mean, obviously, JR's scars are very visible um, from from a distance. If if you didn't know who I was and you didn't know what had happened to me, you would have no idea that there is a two-inch scar on the back of the head, my head. It's there. It's covered with hair. I can't see it unless I look at a mirror that's reflected at a mirror. I don't have to tell people that I was injured. He doesn't have that choice. So I think um, as a comedian, that's that's probably the other reason I use that joke and I tell that story. Right. But So you have, you have a sort of invisible injury, but... Um, are there, I guess I wonder, you know, is for you, is the, is the show uh, a way to sort of process out um, the emotional trauma for you of, of being 
in combat and and seeing things that you've seen? Oh, absolutely. If I didn't laugh all the time, I would be crying all the time. And I know because the first two or three years I came home after Iraq, I didn't laugh. And and I was either crying or I was too drunk to. And that's unfortunately what happens. A lot of people come home, they can't process it. They can't deal with it. God God love my wife. Like we we make each other laugh so much and not because I'm a comedian. It's more like we're just both idiots when we're together. <laughs> Like she can, she can not say a word first thing in the morning and make me laugh. And if really, if, if it weren't for stand up comedy, I don't know if I would be where I am. And I think that me being able to process it this way helps other soldiers and other veterans and just other people who suffer trauma be able to process it too. Mm-hmm. Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is our friend Richard Lewis. Thank you for your service, bro. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And our neighbors, Leslie and John. What a hero you are. Thank you oh, for your please. service. Oh, thank sure. you. The real heroes are still there, but I appreciate thank it. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Yep. Grateful nation. And this is our friend Larry. Hey, hey, nice to meet you. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know what? Um, I'm going to excuse myself. Picture. <laughs> you know, I have I have always wondered that. I hear it. It's one of those pat phrases I feel like we should say to veterans. And I, I don't know how it comes across to people who have actually been in service. If, if someone were to say, hey, thank you, I want them to know exactly what they're thanking me for. Because I was at a barbecue and this dude ha- handed me a beer and he's like, hey, man. Thank you for your service. Today's for you. I'm like, it's Arbor Day. Like, it's clearly not for me. This is not the right holiday. It's not Veterans Day or Memorial Day. It is about trees that we are burning in the pit right now. So, like, if you are going to say thanks, know what you're thanking us for. Like, I used to say that being in the military is like being Asian. Like, if you're not part of that group, you think we're all the same. Like, people, civilians who see somebody in camouflage, will either they assume they are in the army or in the Marines. That's it. Mm-hmm. People see an Asian person, they will assume that we are either Chinese or Chinese. Like there's no, there's, there's no differentiation. Um, and that's not true. We are all different. We are all very layered people with a lot of spectrums to who we are and what we do. And people in the military like that too. We just do it jumping out of an airplane sometimes. Tom Tran is the host of Battle Scars from Panoply. To find out more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll chat with 95-year-old TV legend Norman Lear about the vagaries of the human condition. It's hard to be a human being, but it is uh, it is extraordinarily interesting. <laughs> That's up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Leanne Roselle from Arlington, Virginia. And I was just listening to your show where you interviewed Alex Kotlowitz about his podcast, Written Inside. And that reminded me of a new podcast that I found that's been really great. 
It's called Ear Hustle. It comes from inside San Quentin Prison. It's made by prisoners and a person who comes in from outside to help them produce the podcast. In the cells at Pelican Bay, everything is cement and metal. There's one cement slab that's your bed and another that's your desk and stool. The cell has no windows and no view of the outside world. How the hell does someone function there? All minds ain't strong enough for it, I can tell you that. Because when you're in the Pelican Bay shoe, you're dealing with total isolation. I mean, total isolation. You really feel like you're eavesdropping and learning something new about prison life. That's my review. Thanks. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you're like our pal Leanne and you are into podcasts from folks who we don't often get to hear from, like incarcerated people, give us a bell and let us know. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. Well, there are few people in Hollywood who could top Norman Lear's career. The 95-year-old producer has been making television audiences laugh and think since the 1950s. In the 1970s, he created a whole new type of TV sitcom with shows like All in the Family, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, Maude, and The Jeffersons. Did you ever think a couple of years ago that we'd be living up here in style, looking down on the greatest city in the world? No, I didn't. And I must admit, it's wonderful. You know something, Weezy? We were meant for each other. Oh, thank you, George. New York and me! You gotta love Sherman Helmsley. Lear never really stopped making shows. A revamped One Day at a Time starring Rita Moreno is in its second season on Netflix. And he's about to pilot another show called Guess Who Died starring Holland Taylor. Oh, and because that's not enough for a man who's almost a century old, he also has a podcast. It's called All of the Above with Norman Lear. All of the Above with Norman Lear. It's All of the Above with Norman Lear. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, you know that Norman Lear is just another version of you. So I'm sitting here at this table with... uh, Oh, this is Norman there, I neglected to say. (laughs) And the uh, title of what we're about to do is All of the Above, which is a fair title because, I don't know, (laughs) Paul, is there anything we won't talk about? There's nothing we won't talk about. And it's All of the Above with Norman Lear. Norman Lear, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. Very good to be here. Um, For you, I mean, it seems like, you know, when you were entering into television, that there weren't shows that were, you know, that, that were that were touching on hot button issues of the day. I mean, they were about, you know, like the boss coming to dinner or like what a naughty kid did or something like that. It wasn't it, it didn't feel sort of intellectually meaty in the same way. Um, and I'm wondering sort of what pushed you into that realm of, you know, of touching on issues that that maybe weren't polite to talk about on TV. Well, Sometimes I think it it could have started with uh, with my father going to prison when I was nine years old. Uh, my mother had quickly decided she was moving. She couldn't bear being in Chelsea, Massachusetts. She was selling the furniture. And there were strangers over looking at the furniture. And there was one chap particularly I wanted to kick in the behind or the other word. <laughs> Uh, in front of the barn, who wanted to buy my father. It was uh, He did actually buy my father's red leather chair. That was the chair that we sat in together. 
Anyway, uh, he saw the look on my face, uh, which had to be, you know, tear-filled, because he was buying that chair, and the rug of life was being pulled out from under me, Mm -hmm. and uh, put his hand on my shoulder, (laughs) and he said, there, there, son, you're the man of the house now. And uh, right there, or thinking about it later, uh, I saw the enormous foolishness in the human condition. As a consequence, I've seen the, uh, the humor that exists in the saddest of moments, and that's what I just natively chose to deal with. Right. Right. And then particularly family dynamics. I mean, the shows, I think, that um, that come to mind immediately when, you know, when you hear your name is uh, are these shows that are all about these interesting family dynamics. Was that w- was that appealing to you to, to portray that because of the way that your family had been sort of fractured uh, when you were young? Well, yes. My my family lived, as my friend Herbie Gardy used to put it, at the top of their lungs and the ends of their nerves. We lived in Hartford. Family would come in from New Haven and from Boston. And when all the family was together, then you could count on somebody like, like Florence uh, being pissed off because 14 years ago, Sadie didn't make it to Elsa's <laughs> wedding. <laughs> and uh, that will come up again, and the biggest fight you ever heard <laughs> will end right. to the point where nobody remembers even what they're fighting about, but they're fighting. You know, today in media, we talk a lot about representation and appropriation, but you've been lauded for all these shows you've made with characters that are nothing like you, at least, you know, from from the outside. You know, you're you weren't black or female or, you know, more recently, obviously, Latino. Um, And yet you seem to um, be quite adept at creating culture around these groups. And I wonder why you think that is, because it's not you know, it's not easy to create. um, It it is because. as my bumper sticker reads, I believe we are just another version. I, I am just another version of you. You are just another version of me. That, that is currently on your car right now? Yes, and has been for some years. It means we can be wildly different. And we are because we are each of us, I think, unique. There is, you know, there is only one of you that ever was, only one of me that ever was. Mm-hmm. And uh, despite that, we're related to each other. We are versions of one another. doesn't mean we haven't got a tremendous... It means we have even more than we might have imagined to learn about what it means to be a human being because there are so many different unique ones. It's hard to be a human being, but it is, uh, it is extraordinarily interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you watch a lot of TV now? Are you a Are you a consumer yourself? No, I don't watch a lot of TV. I, I guess uh, having spent all those years making them, because we shoot uh, shot them at night. Uh, I whether I didn't pick up the habit or what, I don't know. I'm there for the big events. You know, I hear about something like Get Out. I think Get Out is easily one of the, among the 10 best films in my lifetime. 
That's amazing. What was it about it that that, that touched a nerve for you? It is it is one of the great horror films of all time, and, and its horror derives from human nature, not from tortured human nature. Anyway, it's to be seen. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk to you about your podcast. I'm curious about why you wanted to start one in the first place, because it seems to me that you have probably had the conversations with everyone you could possibly want to have a conversation with that, you know, people are probably banging down your door as opposed to the other way around. The inspiration for the show was somebody saying, hey, you want to do a podcast? <laughs> That's it. That's it. And you said yes. <laughs> that was it. I, I love the whole idea of talking and uh, hopefully uh causing more conversation. Yeah, what are you trying to get out of your guests? Because I feel like they're kind of all over the map. They're actors and athletes and journalists and all kinds of folks. Um, well, the title are, is All of the Above. All of the Above. All Yeah, I mean, you, your guests are all of the above. You are all of the above. Um, what are you trying to learn from them? Uh, how to be a human being. Is that something you need help with? Yes, I have a podcast to take uh, How to Be a Human Being lessons. I think <laughs> we're all in that, you know, pursuit of study. You know, it takes many lifetimes. Who were you last time, do you think? What, my previous life? <laughs> yes. I don't know what my previous life was, but I know what I would like to be in my future life. You know, I secretly want to be a Broadway diva. Like, that's my, I hope that I'm reincarnated as that. Here's the absolute truth. Okay. If I could have sung the way I have watched the Bobby Darrens and Frank Sinatras and uh, Tony Bennett's of my life, standing in a single spotlight, singing and watching people go nuts or fall in love or, you know, have the happiest moment ever. So in our next lifetime... Let's do this together. Oh, yes. Do you want to be a duo? I'll be a duo. I'll be a Nuno. I'll do it. <laughs> Any way this I is, can do I, it. I can't wait. I can't wait for this. Um, but we're going to have to bring back like supper clubs and, and, you know, places where like lounge singers could, could go. Or we could just, you know, write our own Broadway show. And perform. I tell you what, let's make a date right now for 2091. Oh, great. <laughs> great, great. You know, speaking of um, when you were talking about having conversations with folks um, and that there's, you know, there's a real need to, to have those. I feel like you in your show and your podcast, you broach a lot of uncomfortable subjects on the podcast. And sometimes the conversations can get like a little little cringeworthy because they go into hard places. I think I'm thinking specifically of, you know, you talk biracial families and colorism with Rashida Jones. In my own frustration in my life, which is that I, I know who my parents are. I know who I am. I know what I identify with culturally. I have experienced some ignorance in terms of the way that I look. And people make comments to me about what they think I am, um, which sometimes undercuts who you know you are or tries to. You know, talk about that. That could not be more interesting. Well, I wonder if you can get away with these types of conversations and be very frank um, because you are older and, you know, you have both experienced a lot of life, but also people give you a little leeway. You know, I, I think the two words in your question 
that kind of answer the question you asked are the words get away. Mm -hmm. Isn't it a shame that one one thinks that to talk about stuff we all are living through is Mm -hmm. getting away with something? I don't Mm -hmm. think any of these conversations get away with anything. I care Mm -hmm. to go there because because it's life, because it's being lived. None of it is uh, is made up like so much of what we listen to. We're, we're trying to scrape the barrel of our own experience to reveal some truth, but nothing is off limits. Norman Lear is the host of All of the Above with Norman Lear from Podcast One. He's also a 2017 Kennedy Center honoree, along with Gloria Stefan and Lionel Richie, FYI. To find out more about his show, hit up biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Ugh, get out of here. But before we let you go, it's time for... Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. We're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached the summit of number 289, then shout it from the rooftops. Because that is quite an achievement, friend. Okay, so this week's 289 is a show called Just Ask David. Thank you for joining us. Apparently, David Pollock is the beauty guru. We were laughing before we got started. (laughs) One episode I listened to talked with a woman named Kelly Richardson. She's an industry expert in sunless tanning, skincare, you name it. Sunless tanning tips. Uh, You want to look tan, but you don't want to go through all the dangerous stuff. I mean, I've never looked in the mirror and been like... (laughs) You know what complete this outfit? A tan. How do I look tan before all my guests arrive? So here are a couple of things. A base tan is a bad idea. There's no way to actually prep your skin to be safe from the sun, besides wearing sunscreen. It's actually just going to make you look like a crispy piece of bacon. (laughs) So talk to me how to get a tan before the winter vacation. There are tons of sunless tanning lotions and spray tans and things, but... David's advice was, start gradually. Tanning is 90% application, 10% product. Because you can always add more, but you can't take it away once you get that orangey hue. Because the consumer wants a tan, they want to get it fast, and they go for the darkest. Oh, also exfoliate. Grab a loose sauce. Exfoliating is really, really important. And you can do that with basically just like some sugar and some orange juice. No matter what product you're using, you're going to have a good tan. I'm not entirely certain what David's credentials are, but... You know, he has a lot of thoughts on beautiful, radiant skin. What you're saying is the most brilliant thing, and I applaud you for it. David Pollack, the beauty guru, can probably help you out. I've never known a redhead to get a tan. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will slip slide right into your feed every week. And gee whiz, won't that be fun? Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Hear Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. Also, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Ruch, and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was busy fixing a hole in my dog's sweater. Dave Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. 
The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Senator Heidi Heidkamp, Democratic lawmaker from North Dakota and host of The Hot Dish. Heidkamp is up for re-election this year, and it'll likely be a rough race. But don't expect the podcast to enter into the fray. The podcast itself is a part of my federal function, my governmental function. So it should not be partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it shouldn't be political, and it won't be political. In fact, Heidkamp makes every effort to make the hot dish as bipartisan as possible. Many of her guests have been lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle. I hope that what we continue to do is present all sides to, to provoke thought and, and to help continue to explain the public positions that I've taken in my role in, in government. So tune in for the bipartisanship. But stay for the amazing accent. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. And now it's you know, great. I was trying to remember people say, well, do you say, yeah, you betcha? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't. That's Minnesota. <laughs> I said, I say, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's my, my go-to. Well, there you go. And there you go. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time. Keep listening, America. This is NPR. <laughs>